The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Ecclesia, let's pray. Dear God, I pray that as we listen, that we will remember that your ancient stories might be old, but the wisdom in them is always new. I pray that we will see ourselves in your stories and word, and that we will remember that you are holy and three in one. In your name we pray, amen. For those of you that don't know me, I'm kind of, I've preached here an awkward amount of time, so some of you know who I am, others I am a new face, but my name is Erica Graham, and I'm so honored to be preaching today. And we're doing a series called Voices of Our Culture, and so we're encouraged to incorporate songs or movie clips into this fun summer series that we're doing. And I had my whole sermon planned out. And I didn't include a song because I forgot that we were in this series. But when I realized I needed to think of a song, one almost immediately came to mind because the words so perfectly match the stories that we're going to hear. And that is The Space Between by Dave Matthews Band. I can remember going to Dave Matthews concerts with my friends And I remember thinking, Dave Matthews is the only person that understands me. (laughs) Him and Alanis Morissette, that jagged little pill album, those were the two people that knew what it was like to be a teenager. And when I hear that song, I hear it differently now, as we often do. Sometimes you can hear something old and familiar, yet hear it new. I think the Bible's a lot like that. I think music is a lot like that, that you hear it with a new pair of ears and a new set of eyes and you understand it in a way you didn't before. And when I think of what the space between means, I think of that holy trinity that we just finished up in that song, that three in one. The Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit is what we just sang about. And our God came to us not in a singular form, I think one of the really unique things about Christianity particularly is that we worship a Trinitarian God. And we don't just worship a God, but we worship a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. And it is the space between those three things where I believe the magic happens. And if our God is a relational God, And it comes to us in a set of threes, almost to say in quite obvious terms that he is relational. And we are made in his image, then I believe that we are relational beings too. And that means that we can't do this life alone. And that the space between us and God and the space between us and others matters. And my husband, Garrett, he, he called me out recently. He said, if a student calls you and needs you, you'll go drive and pick him up. Or if somebody wants to get coffee with you, you'll drop everything and get coffee with them. 
but I feel like I come last and that I just get whatever's left over of you. And honestly, he was right. Because we have a Thursday night date night at our house and I hadn't made that Thursday night in probably six weeks because I had something supposedly more important to do. I have a paper due. Oh, I gotta meet this person. No, we'll do it next week, we'll do it next week. And pretty soon, a month and a half had gone by and I hadn't prioritized one of our Thursday dates. And so I think oftentimes the space between us and others, the space that matters the most, like a marriage, can be ignored because we hear the lies of our culture that tell us that something matters more than that. And so often it's on our deathbed that we realize that what mattered the most to us in our lives were the people in it, yet our priorities and our schedules were not prioritized accordingly. And it's hard for us to admit that we can't do this life alone, that we don't have it all figured out and that we need the people around us in our lives to make it meaningful and purposeful. And I've been open with some of you guys about um, a struggle I've had with addiction. And I, this was six years ago and in, in a recovery meeting, I'll never forget, there were these coins and chips and on the chips, They said, together we can do what we could never do alone. And I thought, oh, that's kind of cute. You guys need each other. I, personally, I'm pretty fantastic. I can do this on my own, but that's cute. You guys all need each other. But the reality is, I don't care if you're in a recovery meeting or if you're not, that is true for all of us. We need each other and we belong to each other. And to ignore that basic reality, I think is to ignore that our God exists in a Trinitarian form. And we are relational because our God is too. Charles Dickens calls the parable we're gonna read today, the greatest parable ever told. And I believe it's a parable about the reality that we are relational. It's a parable about what happens when we drift away from God or drift away from the people that matter most in our lives and become lost. It's the most famous parable in the Bible. And that's the story of the lost son. So we're going to read this parable together. It starts out in Luke 15. And by the way, Usually stories are retold in the gospel. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it'll like, it'll say the same stories over and over again in different ways. That's not the case for the prodigal son. So Luke is the only chapter that covers the story of the lost son. And it starts off in Luke 15 with Jesus hanging out with some Pharisees and scholars. It says, Jesus became increasingly popular among notorious sinners, tax collectors, and other social outcasts. The Pharisees and religious scholars noticed this. They said, this man welcomes immoral people and enjoys their company over a meal. So I picture this scene right here in beginning of Luke 15, like a middle school lunchroom. And these Pharisees and scholars are like, can you believe who Jesus is sitting with? 
And the reality is, if there was a choice between hanging out with the popular cool kids or hanging out with the outsiders, Jesus chose the marginalized and the outside every single time. And in those times, who you ate with mattered. So one way that you could establish your socio-religious boundaries was to eat with people that, think, that had the same thoughts as you and theology as you, had the same environment as you. You hung out with people that were like you and Jesus didn't follow those rules of who's inside and who's outside. And so they're gossiping and they're talking about Jesus being the one who's eating with people that were supposedly in their eyes below Jesus. And Jesus responds to this gossip with a story. And if you notice in the Bible, every time Jesus is called out or every time somebody asks Jesus a question, he doesn't give a simple answer. He responds with either a story, which we call parables. So he responds with a story or with another question. And so to answer this question of why he's hanging out with the outsiders, Jesus tells the story of the lost sheep. And I feel like we need a reminder of how cute sheep are. <laughs> so if you lose that guy, you're gonna wanna find him. And so Jesus tells this story of the lost sheep and he says, okay, let me, let me explain to you why I'm eating with these people. Um, pretend that you had a hundred sheep and that you lost one of them. Wouldn't you go out into the fields and find the lost sheep? And when you found him, wouldn't you scoop him up and bring him home and then throw a party and celebrate because what is lost has now been found? And I picture the Pharisees being like, maybe you do belong at that table. Like that is a weird response for what I'm getting at. And he thinks, okay, so maybe, maybe this group didn't understand the lost sheep. So he thinks of another story that's almost the exact same, but he substitutes out money. I picture him being like, I bet you guys care about money. You'll listen to this story. And he tells the story of the lost coin. And he said, a woman had 10 coins and she lost one of them. That's, this is her in distress over this lost coin. That everyone else thought that picture was funny. You guys don't think that's funny. I'm like, not serious. Uh, so she's in distress over not being able to find this one coin. And then when she finds the coin, she celebrates and throws a party and she calls her neighbors and she says, what is lost has been found. And I picture the Pharisees being like, why are we talking about sheep and coins? And so that's when Jesus goes into the story of the lost son. He says, okay, you religious scholars can't think in creative metaphor. I'm just going to make it about humans and listen to this story. And he tells a story that many of you guys have probably already heard. It's the story of the prodigal son. I'm going to warn you, this is a long story, but because it's one of the most popular stories in the Bible and it's an important story, some scholars believe that this one story summarizes the whole New Testament. So we're going to read all of it and power through. So it starts out in Luke 15, 11, and it reads, Once there was this man who had two sons. One day the younger son came to his father and said, Father, Eventually, I'm going to inherit my share of your estate. Rather than waiting until you die, I want you to give me my share now. And in Jewish times, asking for your inheritance while your 
father still alive is basically like saying, you're dead to me. Give me what you would give me when you die. So it was a very offensive question. But the father responded, he liquidated his assets and divided them. A few days passed and this younger son gathered all his wealth and set off on a journey to a distant land. Once there, he wasted everything he owned on wild living. He was broke. A terrible famine struck that land and he felt desperately hungry and in need. He got a job with one of the locals who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man felt so miserably hungry that he wished he could eat the slop the pigs were eating, but nobody gave him anything. And in Jewish times, pigs were like the satanic animal. They had an extra negative connotation. So Jesus was very strategic when he made up stories in the animals he used. You know, in a sermon I gave earlier, it was about casting out demons into pigs. So there's a reason that he chose pigs for this story. So he had this moment of self-reflection. What am I doing here? Back home, my father's hired servants have plenty of food. Why am I here starving to death? I'll get up and return to my father and I'll say, Father, I have done wrong, wrong against God and against you. I have forfeited any right to be treated like your son, but I'm wondering if you'd treat me as one of your hired servants. So he's thinking, I'll plan this sob story and go back to dad and see if he'll take me back, right? Now this next line, Luke 15, 20, is what Peter ends, one of my favorite theologians. He calls this line the most important line of the parable and maybe even the Bible. The father responds, so he got up and returned to his father. The father looked off in the distance and saw the young man returning. He felt compassion for his son and ran out to him and folded him in an embrace and kissed him. So you'll notice the father responds with love and forgiveness before he's even heard the apology. The son said, Father, I have done a terrible wrong in God's sight and in your sight too. I have forfeited any right to be treated as your son. But the father turned to his servants and, and said, Quick, bring the best robe we have and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. Go get the fattest calf and butcher it. Let's have a feast and celebrate because my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and has been found. So they had this huge party. So up until now in the story, this really echoes the lost sheep and the lost coin, right? There's a lost person, coin or sheep. We find it, it returns home and we have a party. Those are those three stories. But what makes the prodigal son story different is that they add a third character. And this third character is a character that many of us can probably relate to. It's the brother. And now the man's older son was still out in the fields working. He came home at the end of the day and heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. And the servant said, your brother has returned and your father has butchered the fattest calf to celebrate his safe return. The older brother got really angry and refused to come inside. So his father came out and pleaded with him to join the celebration. So this brother's mad, right? He's like, why is there a party at my house? And then he finds out it's for his delinquent brother. Imagine his jealousy and confusion. 
But he argued back, listen, all these years I've worked hard for you. I've never disobeyed one of your orders. But how many times have you even given me a little goat to roast for a party with my friends? Not once. This is not fair. So this son of yours comes, this wasteful delinquent who has spent your hard-earned wealth on loose women. That's a twist to the story. So this wild living involves spending money on loose women. And, and what do you do? You butcher the fattest calf from our herd. But the father in this story replied, my son, you are always with me and all I have is yours. Isn't it right to join in the celebration and be happy? This is your brother we're talking about. He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found again. And so when we read those stories, I think it's easy to identify as the lost son sometimes in our lives. Or maybe you identify more with the brother and you think, I do everything right. I follow the rules. I go to work. I got my family health insurance. I'm doing all the things you're supposed to do. Yet I feel unseen, unnoticed, and unappreciative, unappreciated in my life. Or maybe you do identify more with that lost son that feels distant from God. And most scholars and theologians agree that this parable is a metaphor for God. So the son in this story, or, or sorry, the father in this story is actually our father in heaven. And if that's true, that means when we mess up and when we feel lost, that our God always responds with love and celebration when we are ready to return. And the reason we're still talking about this story 2,000 years later is because that doesn't make sense. If my husband, Garrett, said, I would like to liquidate our assets and go to Vegas and spend money on wild living and women, and then I saw him returning over the horizon, coming back home. I don't think I'd be like, you know what? We're gonna throw you a party tonight. <laughs> right? It doesn't make sense. But God and our Father in heaven doesn't play by the rules that we do. His grace and love don't run on an economy of scarcity. It is always abundance. And even the brother that felt jealous, I believe that he was falling into that same belief that you could earn God's love because he felt like he was the brother that should have earned it yet he didn't feel seen. And God was clear, or the father in that story was clear to comfort that brother and say, listen, I've seen your hard work. You're doing a great job. I love you just as much and what's mine is still yours. And so oftentimes we are one of these two characters. When I was 16 years old, I was downstairs and my family was sleeping upstairs and it was one in the morning. And I was eating a loaf of bread and a stick of butter. Not normal. And my dad came downstairs and he caught me. And I felt so full of shame. 
Because the reality was food was kind of disappearing in our house and I would binge on food by myself late at night and then I would wake up and run eight miles. And my dad said, Erica, we need to get you help. And I thought, you just want toast in the morning. Is that what this is about? Your toast is gone. But my parents drove me to Milwaukee and I met with some expert. And I'm a 16-year-old and I'm like, what do experts know? I mean, Dave Matthews gets me. This girl does not. And I had good grades and a boyfriend and friends. And I played three sports. So I didn't really think I had a problem. My family was just overreacting. Stop being so ridiculous. I'm fine. And recently, more recently, I've re-explored my relationship with food with an expert, which I now believe are real. And she said something to me that really stuck with me. She said, if you mess up or you find yourself feeling anxious around food or overeating or binging, you cannot respond to yourself with punishment or a run. You have to respond to yourself with love because that's the only way to heal. And I said, that's the story of the prodigal son. And she's like, you're weird. (laughs) But it is. Because the opposite of healing, or the opposite of punishment, is healing. And isn't that true in our criminal justice system? That the opposite of punishment is healing? And yet it's so hard for us to actually live that out. And I think of Ecclesia living this parable in the real world. And Ecclesia recently went to Mexico City, and we didn't just serve the people that many are calling on the outside or on the fringe. We didn't just serve the marginalized. In typical Ecclesian fashion, we threw them a party with tacos and food trucks and a marachi band. That's what it looks like to live out these ancient stories today, is to celebrate those that are on the outside even when it's ourself. There's a study by a researcher by the name of Bruce Alexander, and there's a TED talk on this specific research project, and it's called Rat Park. It's a controversial research project, so it was in the 70s that Bruce Alexander invented Rat Park. And what he did is typical addiction studies are done with a rat in a box or in a room, and they can administer the rat drugs and food, and you can prove that you can get a rat hooked on drugs. It's well documented, that is true. Well, Bruce Alexander created something called Rat Park, and there were obstacle courses and wheels to play on and other rats to hang out with. There were things to do and you could belong in a community. And what his research found is that the rats in Rat Park were much less likely to get addicted to the drugs than the rats that were alone in a box. And this seems like common sense, but it's pretty groundbreaking. Because if you think about it, this is proof that we are relational beings and that we need other people for meaning and purpose and love. And that when we ignore the spaces between us, we ignore our God-given humanity and purpose. And that is to live with intentionality and connection. Right now in America, research shows 
that we are more lonely than we've ever been. And Brené Brown, who's a sociologist, and I referenced her in my last sermon, and I said I wasn't going to use her again, but it's just too good not to. Her Her recent research showed that there is a direct correlation between loneliness and our ability to sort. And so what happens right now is we are sorting ourselves out. We hang out, much like the Pharisees and scholars, we eat lunch with and hang out with the people that think like us and look like us and act like us. They have the same Christian theology that we do. And what she found is that as we continue to sort ourselves into these tribes, we actually become more lonely because we are finding people and hanging out with people based on who we can hate together, especially right now in America. In our divided political climate, we are sorting ourselves based on who we hate together. And maybe you have a friendship that does this, where the only way that you know how to connect with this person is to gossip about that one person. And when we sort ourselves based on what Brené Brown calls common enemy intimacy, so when we make friends on common enemy intimacy, it works. We can make a lot of friends if we can all hate someone together. So it'll work for friendship, but what it doesn't work for is feelings of connection. So you can make a lot of friends, but you will just feel as lonely and isolated in those friendships. And I believe the reason for that is because like the prodigal son, the space between you and others has to be love. And if it's based on hating the same people, then that will trigger our loneliness. And research shows that it does. And loneliness is worse for your health than high blood pressure and obesity. Loneliness can literally kill us. Yet we are finding ourselves more lonely than ever before. And I believe that when we're tapped into this reality that God loves us, that that is the cure for our loneliness because the research at Stanford by Dr. Emily Sapala says that Loneliness, it's, it's interesting. So she defined loneliness as being toxic for our health, but at the same time, it has nothing to do with how many friends you have. And she reasons that loneliness comes from within. So a child that runs up to another child on a playground, they already feel connected to that child before the friendship's even made because it's something that comes on the inside. And we're gonna watch a short video clip It's taken from the movie Into the Wild. It's a true story. It was a book as well. And in this scene, Christopher is on his way to Alaska. And Christopher has had a lot of bad relationships in his life. And he's really doubtful that he needs anybody else in his life. He he, he thinks he can do this life on his own. So he's going to go live in Alaska by himself. And on his way to Alaska, he makes all these meaningful friendships. And there's a short clip of him and Ron together. Yeah. Uh. You all right? Ah, yeah, a little bit bit in the head. Ah. Ah. 
I got to miss you when you go. I'll miss you too, Ron. But you're wrong if you think that the joy of life comes principally from human relationships. God's placed it all around us. It's in everything, in anything we can experience. People just need to change the way they look at those things. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take stock of that. No, I am. I am. But I want to tell you something. From the bits and pieces I've put together, you know from what you told me about your family, your mother and your dad. And I know you got your problems with the church too. But there's some kind of bigger thing we can all appreciate. And it sounds like you don't mind calling it God. But when you forgive, you love. And when you love, God's light shines on you. So in that clip, this older man, Ron, is reminding Christopher that relationships really do matter, and we do need each other. And the movie ends where he made it to Alaska. I'm going to spoil the movie for you guys, but it came out in like 2010, so you've had enough time to watch it, I think. Um, he makes it to Alaska, and he's living on his own, and he eats a poisonous berry. And it's a true story. So this really happened. He eats a poisonous berry. He realizes he's going to die. And on his final day, they found his journal. And he wrote on his last entry that happiness is only real when shared. And how often are people on their deathbeds realizing the thing that mattered most to them was the thing that they ignored the most as well. And so if happiness is only real when shared, then that means we have to pay attention to the spaces between each other and the space between us and God. And when we neglect that, we neglect what it means to live into a Trinitarian existence that acknowledges that relationships matter. Uh, Ilya DeLeo is an astrophysicist nun. And she came to Houston two years ago. And I went to her conference, and I took all kinds of notes that I do not understand any of what I wrote. But one thing she said stuck with me. And she said, in particle physics or in quantum mechanics, there's something called quantum entanglement. And when two particles in, in physics are entangled with one another, they become related. And what's interesting about quantum entanglement is after you separate these two entangled particles, when one particle spins one way, the other particle will automatically spin the other direction and nobody knows why they're still connected. And for me, Ecclesia, that is proof that there is something going on in the spaces between. And that whether we're able to logically understand it or not, the spaces between us matter. And when we neglect that basic truth, 
We neglect the love that is always offered by our Father to return home to Him when we feel lost. And if we say yes to that invitation on a daily basis, I believe we are saying yes to our relationships in God and the stories that Jesus meant for us to come back to 2,000 years later and remember this exquisite truth. Let me pray with you. Dear God, I pray that as we go into our weeks and months, that we will remember that your love is something that we can never earn. I pray that when we feel like that lost son or we feel like that jealous brother, that we will remember that your love is always there and that we are always seen because these stories were written so long ago but exist in the lives of us and our communities today. I pray that we will acknowledge the spaces between us as sacred and holy and that we will pay attention to them because that's how we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ectasiahouston.org.